So this was like very primitive version of DoorDash or some of the food delivery companies. Didn't work out, work out at all, but I did learn a lot of things. I ended up uh, becoming the you know, quote-unquote CEO of this company because the CEO was like, hey, I'm leaving. I'm joining a bigger company. If you want to stay, here's the clients, here are the products. You can stay if you want, but then I don't pay how, you know, the amount of money I owe you. And I said, yes, I was 21 years old. <laughs> Big mistake. I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> Welcome to the What is UX podcast, the show where we interview design leaders about their journey and experience so that you may learn from them. I'm your host, Peck Pompat. I've been looking forward to this episode for a long time. Our guest here is very busy, but I finally got him on the show. He's Koji Pereira, and he is the head of design at Lyft Business. And I've been, uh, you know, full disclosure, I use Lyft and, you know, I definitely prefer Lyft to the competitor. So I've always liked its design sense and its kind of approach and its friendliness. So we can talk a little bit about that. But really, this guest today has such an interesting background, an interesting story that I really want him to share with our audience and with the world. And uh, so with that, welcome, Koji. Thank you, Peck. Thanks for having me today. Very excited to chat. Yeah. Just a brief overview. What, what do you do at Lyft and what is Lyft Business? Okay. So I manage a team called Lyft Business. And what we do at Lyft Business, we create products for organizations, companies, and healthcare systems to get rides for their employees, collaborators, or patients. So you can think about as a way to pay for the rides for someone else in your organization. So one of uh, our main products is a product that we launched last year called Lyft Pass. And what LiftPass uh, lets you to do if you go to liftbusiness.com is to create a program, let's say commute program, share with your employees, and you can set a group of restrictions, let's say from city center to neighborhoods from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. And then you can share that benefit through a link, an email, or via SMS, for instance. We are a team of today five designers and three researchers, and we build some of these products. I mentioned one, but we actually have more. Right now, it's around six to seven different product offerings. Yeah. And, and how big in terms of the percentage of the business is Lyft business compared to the Lyft consumer that, that most people see? Good question. I don't think I have numbers to share on that aspect in terms of percentage, but I can say though that Lyft Business is one of our biggest bets, especially during the pandemic. Last year, Lyft Pass was highlighted on the earnings calls uh, with our CEO on K2 and K3 because during the pandemic, if you think about it, uh, Lyft Business covers. Uh, a segment on healthcare that is actually our biggest segment. And during the pandemic, of course, people needed to go to hospitals, people needed to get tested. And right now we're actually offering uh, Live Pass as part of the vaccine in the US. That's amazing. And thank you for shedding some light on a new business aspect. I, I wasn't even familiar with Lyft. So getting back to the one of the topics I wanted to cover before we get back to Lyft business and getting in some insights there and, and just Lyft in general, 
you have such an amazing story. You, you come from, I don't want to ruin it for the audience. I want Koji to tell the story, but please share with us your background, where you grew up and take us through that journey. Yes, sounds good. So I grew up in a very simple family, I would say. I was the first in my family to go to college. And the interesting thing is that my mom, she took care of five kids by herself. Wow. We didn't have, you know, a parent, a father figure. I didn't grow up with a father figure in my family. And she is definitely my role model. Like she taught me everything taught me about resilience, thought about like overcoming and figuring out ways to hustle and build new skills. And with that, she was able to give me a formal education. I was the first to go to college again. And uh, one story that I like to tell is that being the first one going to college is very difficult in Brazil. And when you do that, people have high expectations like, hey, you're going to be a lawyer, you're going to be this traditional type of role where it's very stable. And then I came back to my mom and I said, like, oh, I'm doing fine arts. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the first day she was like, what? You're doing fine arts. But then over time, she like over the week, she was like, you know what? You should do what you like to do, what you believe, where your passion is. Because otherwise, you're going to be forever, you know, sad, and you won't be actually be able to do good work. So with fine arts, I find my way through graphic design, started with graphic design, I had a band that used to do demo tapes, and posters, then internet became a thing. I joined this startup that this was 2000. And they're trying to build a desktop product that people would connect to the internet, open the website order a pizza we had a server connected to a facsimile we would send the facsimile to the pizza place deliver the pizza and get the money in cash so this was like very primitive version of doordash or some of the food delivery companies didn't work out work out at all but i did learn a lot of things i ended up uh, becoming the you know quote-unquote ceo of this company because the ceo was like hey I'm leaving, I'm joining a bigger company. If you want to stay, here's the clients, here are the products. You can stay if you want, but then I don't pay how you know the amount of money I owe you. And I said, yes, I was 21 years old. <laughs> big mistake. I didn't know what I was doing, <laughs> but it was a big learning journey. And it was, it put me in a position where I was able to work with a product in a time that we even have a name for that. It was even a product. We just call it website. So, yeah. Wow. That's, well, to, to take over the reins of essentially a startup uh, that's pretty early and then having the CEO leave, that is quite a lot on you. And even before the, you grew, kind of taking back a little bit more, I know you grew up in a fairly poor neighborhood. Tell us a little bit about that and give us maybe some some visuals and some stories. Yeah. You know, the story that stuck in my head is that, you know, growing up in Brazil, in this poor neighborhood, it was very violent. You know, like I had friends that maybe would come to visit me and, you know, have issues on the way to get to my house. But I think the one thing that stuck in my head, and I'm grateful for that, is the fact that the school in my district had, you know, incidents every day. Like people were just like, 
you know, they, they would bring knives to, to the classroom. They would fight with each other. This was like every, every single day. Mm-hmm. And my mom, she had a vision of, okay, I'm driving you out. I kind of have a document that we uh, pretend that we live in a different neighborhood <laughs> and you're going to study in this different district. And I think that just changed a lot. And it was not, you know, it was not even a fancy neighborhood, but it was at least not the violent neighborhood because that exposed me to very different people for me. Yes, I had some issues in terms of like, you know, I didn't fit and people thought that I was like too poor to be there, but, you know, I didn't have the same clothes or my mom didn't have the same cars that they had, but exposed me to things that I maybe I wouldn't be exposed in my district. And that was pretty much uh, a pattern that I repeated in my life because moving forward, when I joined Google in Brazil, Google was just starting, right? Like Google acquired a startup in my city, in the university that I went as an incubator. And it was the first acquisition outside US. This was 2004. In 2008, I joined them. So This was an Orchid? The social network? This was Google, Google building their own office there. But uh-huh. yes, the product that we worked back then was Orkut. But we also had people working on maps, people working on search. This was the first engineering office in Latin America mm-hmm. and from Google, of course. And then when I joined Google, it felt the same way because it was the only company that had that culture in Brazil, in my city. and I was being exposed to things that all my colleagues, all my friends, they were not able to see, you know, because back then my city, maybe like two or three startups was active at that time. And none of them really had the scale nor the culture that Google had. Yeah, I, I can relate in a, a lot of stories that you are, are telling me on a smaller scale, you know, having like growing up in a neighborhood that, you know, going to school in a neighborhood where maybe people have more money or more affluent. At one point, a couple times in my life, I too went to a school where, you know, maybe they're rich kids. And for, for my family, maybe it was it was somewhat subsidized. So we didn't, otherwise we couldn't have afford to to go or pay, pay our way there. And, and yeah, we didn't have the same toys, the same clothes. You know, the allowance was different, yeah. you know, like a lot less. So I, I can very much relate to, to those stories. And then having been a, a Google contract designer, I, I got to get a little peek of what a life is like at Google. And yeah, it's a very special and, and very different place. And the problem- By the way, and- I started as the contractor too at Google. Ah, so yeah. my first year was a contractor. And then I, I was hired as a full-timer. Uh-huh. But, you know, Peck, like, I think you touched the, the, the hotspot because to me, it's always, was always about like doing the maximum you can do with the minimum that life offers you, you know, like, it, it's not like, okay, I have this, all this, all, all these opportunities and I'm choosing one. No, it's doing like 10 times better in order to get like exposed to maybe one opportunity and that's it, you know? And that's was pretty much like my whole time in Brazil. Even when I was at Google, I didn't have many other companies there that I could work back in time. Now there's a lot of startups, very cool ones. So, you know, it's a very interesting thing because likewise, when I grew up, I didn't see that not having a father as you know necessary like a, a lack of something i felt more like okay this is what i have 
what can I do with that? And I'll try to do the best because I also have this in mind that I wanted to give a better life to my family, you know, when I grew up. Yeah, I have a similar story where I grew up not 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 without a father, but really, you know, my my parents had a job where every couple of years we had to move. So we were constantly moving. It was a traveling job. So people always ask me, you know, was that bad? Like that this life like, you know, did you did how was it difficult? And I said, well, if that's all you knew, then it's not difficult. It's just what you know, right? Like we know that hey, we're, this is a reality. Every I'm here now. And then every couple of years, I'm going to move. And, and that's what it is. That's so it wasn't bad or good. It was just, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah. True. And I think parents do a very good job at, you know, just like presenting that reality to you. You know, like I think my mom always said, like, I give you the best that I can, you know, and to me, it was like, okay, this is a big gift, because she's giving the best that she can. And to me, that was like the best, you know, I was always having the best all the time <laughs> in my head. So you've in inspired me to call back call my mom tonight and thank her. So is that how you ended up uh, in the Bay Area through Google and then transferring to, to Google? Correct. Yes. Seven years ago, I started working on Orkut, which was the biggest social network in Brazil, in India, the third in the West. We had more than 100 million active users per month. You know, any change that I would do on Orkut, like all my parents, my friends, and my parent, my friends, everybody will like reach out to me and say, wow, what is this? Like, why you do this? You know, it had like a big impact on people's life. And then in 2000, well, I won't remember the, the dates here, but, and then like, at some point I started to work on G plus for good years. It was just a secret project. Nobody knew about it. Emerald C was a code name for it. And I moved to us because my whole team was already here. So most of the engineering team in Brazil, in my city, Belo Horizonte, they were working on Orkut. And then when the, all the initiatives moved to G+, then the engineering team was here. So I was pretty much working remotely for, I don't know, a year or so. And then I moved to US to continue to work on G+. That's how I got here. Well, given that those both of those products are, are gone, can you share any insights into like looking back now, you probably have more clarity. What were some of the things that worked, you know, kind of give us some design insights and then kind of looking back, you know, what maybe could have been done better, right? With, with Orkut and, and G+. Yeah, let me phrase the rest of the story when I move because I think I'll have the, a better answer with that. So when I moved to US, again, working with Google+, we did launch Google+, then we sunset Orkut. I started to work at some point, you know, at that time it was Vic Gundotra. He was our VP that was leading G+. And at some point we had Bradley Horowitz, who, is, who was the VP for social. That's how our team was called at some point. And, and Bradley, he took a different approach. He was like, I want you guys to try to build different social networks and we're going to see what sticks, you know, mm -hmm. because social network, there is a big element of chance. It's not like, I know FinTech, for instance, is very, you know, if you have a good business plan, you're going to make it, you know, and you have good partnerships. Social network is almost like a mystic thing, right? You have to have 
the right trend, the right people, you know, people like to be uh, connected with your brand. There's many things. And we try multiple things. I work on my Google Spaces. I worked on Who's Down. Some of these products were on air for a year. Then we took off because we decided to sunset it. But I did learn a lot with this processes of like launching something, see what sticks, and then sunsetting things. And one of the things that I took over to my career uh, later when I joined a team called XBN Users and now in the team that I am at Lyft is this very experimental testing where you try to be very focused on discovery side, especially if your product is a new product that doesn't have any competitors or maybe it's a new space. So you want to make sure that one, your problem is clear, right? Like your problem, that's the first thing. Like what's the pain point? What's the problem you're trying to solve? Then you try to measure how big that problem is, right? So when we, when I was on X billion users team, we were trying to build a product for emerging markets. So the first thing we saw is, was one third of the population in India run out of space in their smartphones every day. Like that's like more than half billion people. You know, there's a crazy amount of people. Huge pain point. Huge pain point, large size. Then we started to look at like why they're having this. Then we saw the obvious. It's like most of the people have, unlike US, unlike Silicon Valley, they have cheap Android phones. You know, that's 80%, if I remember correctly, of the smartphones are under $300, Android phones. And then the second thing that we saw is that people don't have the money to buy new phones after they become unusable, right? Like after three months, you run out of space. You can't really watch a video on YouTube. You can't listen to any song. You can't even sometimes use your phone because they start to be very, very slow. So then we came up with this prototype where we had, the prototype did one thing. We showed a card that suggested you to free up space from what's your WhatsApp files that you downloaded. Mm-hmm. And that tested so well because on next billion users team, we're trying to build a product for emerging markets. And we tried so many things before. We tried like a, a gaming platform over a week some of those ideas had zero retention, right? Like we had like engineering prototypes for some of these ideas, things that you could actually install and try. When we tested this idea, like it was a broken prototype. It didn't do much things. Like after a week, we saw 30% engagement. So then we knew like even comparing a prototype with a real product from Google, that was pretty good. And we didn't put any brand, any Google brand. We're trying to build this from the ground and see if the need was there. And then when we saw that, we started to work on it. And then we had a beta version that got leaked. It wasn't intentional. I know most people think like leaks are intentional. This one was not. And what was astonishing to see was that the feedback from the tech blogs was so positive. Like most of the leaks from Google, when get to tech blogs, they are very negative. This one's was super positive. And then we knew like, it was just like reinforcement over enforcement that we were going to the right direction. That's great. And I, I like that you guys launched it 
not under Google, right? Because one, you don't have the pressure of that, but also, like you said, right? Like everybody kind of tends to look, it's hard to be maybe impartial or see it with sort of a clear lens when it's got the Google stamp on it, right? Like for what it is, right? Because you're always going to show it as a, you know, a Google product. And also like in some circles, actually Google has a bad reputation for launching products and killing them. But really, I think exactly. it's it's the right approach to, it's an experiment, right? People think, oh, this is a product. No, it's it's really an experiment. <laughs> yeah, we saw that, you know, when Google launched any new product, there's a spike in interest, you know, like a lot of people install the app, a lot of people access the site because Google puts a lot it's of Google. money on yeah. marketing and, you know, it's Google brand. People know about it. It's going to get in tech blogs. So the way we're trying to find the right value proposition was like, okay, let's strip out the brand. Let's test a prototype. Let's see there if there's interest, right? And if, if there is interest and if it's retaining over time, then this is a very good sign. You know, you won't be 100%, but it's a good sign that if we launch something with the Google brand, with the PR or the marketing, this is going to be huge. And they just crossed 1 billion installs right now. Even for Google numbers, it's immense. It's gigantic. And what was the other number I saw? Oh, yeah. The, when I left, I don't know if this changed, but one of the things we're very proud of is that it was the highest rated app from Google on Google Play Store. So out of all products, you know, like Google Photos, Gmail, Files by Google was a writer's rate app. Wow, that's amazing. Quite quite an ac accomplishment. And how many millions of users? So they just crossed 1 billion installs. Last time, yeah. Last time I checked on monthly active users, and you know, those are all public numbers. I think it was like uh, 500 million active users per month. So it's gigantic. <laughs> and what did I you work it, on it is, specifically? Oh yeah, uh, I didn't talk much about that, but the excitement that I have about this is because this was something we built zero to one. This was a, again, experimental team, very small lean team. We had our VP of product, Caesar. He was basically saying like the same way that Brad said to us, Bradley said to us on social, he was saying like, Hey, bring your experience from adventure labs, the things that you tried at the playbook you did and social but let's apply this to emerging markets and let's try to build the product for emerging markets. So in the beginning, I didn't join the team from, from the day zero, but in the beginning, what I heard is that the team was like five people or something like that. Engineering team was like 10. And then over time, we start to prototype things. We did a lot of design sprints to ideation and, and then like after, I guess, like around a year and a half, we found the right product and we started to focus on files. But again, we tried many other things. Yeah. What, what was the, I get that you just have to try many things, right? And, and we talked about the one massive success for every one massive success. I don't know how many failures would you say there were? Oh my God, there was a lot. I think the biggest difference though is that Google cannot fund you forever if you want to build an experiment like this. So we had to find a way to just like accelerate the failure, you know, mm. like just fail super fast. <laughs> and the way we found to fail super fast is just to like build prototypes, broken apps, 
And just like, we actually went to India, we went to schools, I went to like room by room presenting a product. We had a brand, we had like a kiosk with, with logo and we presented a fake product with a random name just to see if people would be interested in that. Like we did like a one-on-one type of interaction with people to just try out as much ideas as we could until we find, find the right one without having to implement, build things, go to market. We didn't do any of those things. We did just like very scrappy iteration and, and testing things as much as we can. But our prototypes were very close to a realistic product. For files, you hit on a very strong pain point where, you know, you mentioned like a, a third of the people have these problems. How, was there a process or framework to come up with like pain points that lots of people have? Versus just like throwing dark. Yeah, that part was a little bit more random, I would say. Really? Um, we were actually looking at a different problem. And I think at that time, we were looking at the gaming platform. And then we started to see this issue that people were running out of space. You know, when we gave them the prototype, prototype was super slow. You know, screens were broken. You know, we were seeing the reality of being in India in a village and have access. You know, this was actually a, an engineering university, but, you know, still people were like using these phones and they didn't have money to buy better phones. So we started to see this. And then we started to ask them with user research, you know, like you ask very broad questions. What's the biggest pain point of your life today? And then we started to listen that the same thing, like we run out of space. My <laughs> I can't slow. install your game because I can't install the game. And we started with this. We didn't start with the scale. And then we look at the scale. Okay. And when we saw the scale, then we're like, oh, this is big. It's not just that village. Yeah. Amazing. So how did you, you know, kind of fast forward a bit, how, how did you end up at Lyft? Yeah. So at some point, you know, I stayed at Google for almost a decade. And I think the reason why I stayed there in the first place for so long, it's because Google gives you this amazing opportunity to just like work in very different products moved to team. So I had the opportunity to really like explore a lot, work with like various teams, like Verily, Google X, a lot of fun stuff too. But then at some point it was like, I want to work in a different setup, you know, different type of people, different culture, different type of problem. And one thing that I always was excited about was this overlap between product design and service design, or in other words, like digital versus human interactions, you know? And when you get to a lift, you have to think about drivers, you have to think about safety, you have to think about the rider who entered the car, like is it safe to get in the car, or the, what the environment is. And it's not just the digital anymore, right? Like we actually have two apps, we have driver app, we have rider app. So there's way more complexity to the human aspect of it and you don't and, control what the human does either 100 <laughs> not and that was the main reason why it was like okay google is not the same size of company because that was another thing that i was not trying to do is just like staying the same size i wanted to take a little smaller size so i can have more impact and join things from the beginning 
think about team culture. So Lyft was a good in that sense, like a little smaller problem was very interesting. And the culture, I think like very welcoming, which was something that I was looking for moving on. So yeah, so let, now that we're here at Lyft Business and you're designing and leading a team of basically for, you know, the business use case of uh, driving workers to, uh, for healthcare, are there any learnings or insights, you know, uh, kind of in the sense, like the story of files here where the insight was, hey, you know, a lot of people yeah. ha- have this problem. Any interesting insights? The overarching learning for me is that, you know, a long time ago, there was this article saying like, Silicon Valley is a bubble and we must burst that, you know, like it's an empathy bubble, right? Like we, we don't think about what the other Americans are going through. We don't think about what the other people in the world are going through. So we build products that sometimes just serve for us, right? And it's okay. Like we also need products, but the rest of people also want products and they want to have better lives too. And, And actually it also is a good business opportunity. So it's not just a good thing to do, but it's actually also a very good business opportunity. There's a lot of people who need to have better access, who need better, you know, user experiences, who need products that will serve them. And when I join Next Billion Users, when I work on Arcut, when I actually join Lyft to, you know, oversee this healthcare space, for instance, I notice a lot of things that were being overlooked, you know, in terms of when you're building a product, if you really look at people who are underserved by a specific segment, you can really shine. And a good example of that to me is WhatsApp. So WhatsApp started with this very, very typical case in India where your internet connection is not reliable. Maybe it's slow. Maybe it's actually intermittent. There's many aspects of uh, connection. It's not just yes or no. There's a lot of gray, gray areas. And WhatsApp build this messenger that will work for that case end up working great for us too because maybe you are in a flight and you don't have full internet connection the whole time it's way better because it can just queue your messages there and whenever the internet connection hits back the message will be sent right so how do we think this this there is a term for that which is uh, inverse innovation so how do you Think about inverse innovation or even like more diverse products, more inclusive products that will work not only for one typical type of user, but actually for the majority of people in the world, or maybe for people who are underserved in specific parts of the world. And that to me is a big learning that I keep, even for Lyft, that is a very, it's like a US and Canada only product, but you know, there's many people who are not like us who don't have the same privileges that we do. Yeah, yeah. I try to have developed this empathy by one one way I do is I used to have this kind of on purpose cheaper Android phone, you know, like like you said, like a three hundred dollar mm-hmm. when I went to Thailand, I was like I purposely like, hey, let's get a pretty common phone and start using that. Of course I would you know, I again end up pretty getting pretty frustrated and it's slow and it doesn't have a lot of memory, but it gives you that, that little empathy versus, yeah, if you always have the top of a line, you'll, you'll never experience what most of the world, 
Yes. Yeah. That's a great exercise. I used to have a lot of different phones in my desk and I would use some of them like phones with keyboard, feature phones, just to understand like what are the limitations of the technology. I think that gives you a lot of insights on the technology aspects of it. But then there's other aspects like cultural aspects. There's like climate aspects. There is language aspects that for that, you really need to do user research. You know, you need really to go to Thailand as you did, like talk <laughs> with people, go to that village, you know, see how the daily life is. It's really like a anthropological type of research, you know, like you're trying to understand how the daily life is. And you're not necessarily just trying to test a prototype and see if it works. It's not usable. Right, right. Yeah, it's really getting to know that your user a lot better. I, I understand you're quite an advocate for the Latinx community in Silicon Valley. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yes. Well, I think, first of all, it's, it's shocking, you know, the numbers when you look at it, you know, the amount of uh, Latinx people in Silicon Valley, if I'm not wrong, if I remember the numbers now, I think it's around like 40%. And when you look at the people who are in tech, it's 3% or so. So those numbers, I think it does reflect the fact that, you know, when, when I arrived here and I look for people who, you know, I am for people who are not seeing us, but I am half Japanese and half Brazilian. So sometimes I pass as like Mexican or Filipino or very rarely they say Japanese or Brazilian, you know, makes the things. And my mom is like native Indian. She has like native Indian roots in, in Brazil. So it's a mix. And when I arrived here, it was like super hard to feel like I belong, you know, like people, I didn't see many people that looked like me. I didn't see many people who had accent like me, like same type of accent. I felt very shy, very intimidated. And, you know, having the diversity will actually make people feel that they belong. And I think that's one of the first things to think about is like, how are you doing in terms of diversity, in terms of representation, and especially on the leadership side. So that's one. The second one to me is just like, once you have that, you want to make sure that people are heard. Because what happens sometimes is that companies just check the box. Yes, we hired like 20% Latinos, you know, Latinx people. And as that's okay. But then when you, you go to the daily life, they're being excluded. They're not heard. You know, there is a lot of examples where you can see like that movie, Sorry to Bother, right? Like when the guy on the phone is trying to make the white voice to sell something, right? Like, and there's research proving that even people who are not racist, they have, you know, biases. And, and that's just like a, a thing that you don't even control sometimes. And I felt that. I felt that many times people would, you know, try to like steal ideas or not give me the space to talk. And as a leader right now, what I try to do is look up for those people and make sure that I give them the space. I ask them like, hey, how do you feel about this? Hey, do you have any suggestions about this? Like if someone is shy in your team, you want to make sure that person is heard. If not, you know, maybe there's something you can do to train that person in one-on-ones, but ultimately you want that person to feel visible in meetings with more people too. 
Uh, that's such great advice for leaders. I feel like I'm trying to do my part in showcasing diversity, even on this podcast, making sure that we highlight amazing design leaders such as yourself and, and not just, you know, kind of like your typical white male designer. <laughs> I really appreciate that fact. You know, all these small things that we do, I have my podcast too. I think all these things will start to sum and become a thing that people pay more attention to it. And I'm seeing this with all the hate crimes. I think there is a big backlash that we have to rethink the way we, you know, we consider each other, the way we think about inclusion, equity, and diversity. So I hope and I'm very uh, optimistic that, you know, the future will be way better. Yeah. Thank you for that. And uh, you touched on your podcast. I want to take a moment to also promote Koji's podcast. It's called Cells and Pixels, and we'll link it in the show notes. And, you know, as, as we come up on time, is there any other um, message you want to impart or any resources or, or things you want to promote? Yeah. So, well, first of all, thanks for the space. I really appreciate and I do care a lot of for other hosts and other podcasts because i know it's not easy sometimes it can be demotivating you don't have a lot of feedback <laughs> but i really appreciate the work you're doing for the community so that's first and foremost for people who are listening to us i don't have a lot what i would say is you know if you want to follow some of my conversations i have with cells and pixels i'm trying to always likewise Peck is doing here highlight people with diverse backgrounds have very frank conversations and follow me on twitter it's koji e-u-m-e-s-m-o maybe you can put the link there too yep. back and I hope that, you know, maybe the last message is that we grow as a society and we don't escape from the hard conversations anymore. And we just be brave and have the courage to be transparent and vulnerable too, because like I'm open about my personal life here. And the reason why I'm doing this is because I got so many positive feedback from people who said, thanks for telling your story. Because, you know, ultimately what happens is that some of the stories just get invisible. We're seeing this with Palestine right now. Like I have people who I follow today, they're telling their stories and they're not visible. It's just like, they grew up with bombs, you know, like, let's, let's talk about that. Like, this is life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much again for having, you know, coming on the show. And, you know, if you're listening and, and you know, you, you are a business and you need some transportation, go check out Lyft Business. <laughs> but otherwise, yeah, please, please, you know, check out Koji's podcast, Cells and Pixels. And thank you for being on the show. Thank you for joining us on this episode of What is UX? If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. If you leave us a review, I'll make sure to shout it out on the show. If you have any questions, send them to questions at whatisux.co and our guests and I will try to answer them on the show. And you can always find us on whatisux.co. See you on the next one.